instead of feeling I've got to do it all right now. I've got to be in a rush and it's okay to slow down. And instead of piling shame on top of what might've been a painful situation to begin with, realizing that it's hard to be human, you know? Hello, hello, and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman, and I produce this wonderful podcast. And today we've got episode 207, which is part of the Real Life series celebrating the book by the same name, you guessed it, Real Life, which is now available everywhere. And Today's episode is a recording of the launch party that took place on April 11th, 2023, in case you're hearing this at some time in the future. So this book launch is something that we join forces with the Insight Meditation Society to put together, and they have been organizing a IMS book club over the past few years. It's something that emerged out of COVID and the various online offerings that they're doing. And it just felt like the perfect place to gather together and bring this book into the world officially. So for the event, Sharon was joined by the wonderful Joanna Hardy, who is an insight meditation teacher and also Dan Harris, who you may know from his 10% Happier book and podcast and app. So it's a lovely conversation. And if you're someone who enjoys reading, who's a book person, you might love to get involved with the IMS Book Club. It's totally a free offering, and the way they organize it is a Dharma Book of the Month, with discussion and the authors coming together. So it's a great way to be in community, to learn together, and to explore the books you might already be reading in a deeper way. So before we get to the episode, a couple of announcements. We want to send out a big thank you to everyone who has supported this book, Real Life Coming Into the World. It has officially been born and is now available everywhere in hardcover, ebook, and also audiobook. And it's always just a thrilling moment when something that has been in the works in the kitchen for so long <laughs> finally comes out into the world. So we're excited for you to meet this book. And we'll be doing a couple more episodes here on the podcast as part of this book series. So we'll be touching on the themes from the book in the next couple weeks. And for those of you who are interested in supporting this book a little bit more, one of the great ways you can do that is a good old fashioned review on Amazon. And I know not everybody is a big fan of Amazon. They still tend to be a pretty formidable influence in the book world. And it really does have a positive impact on the book to receive reviews. And it just helps people who maybe aren't into Dharma books or haven't read Sharon's work before. 
that this book might interest them. So if you've got a few minutes and you feel like doing that, it's a positive impact for us and we really appreciate it. The last announcement is that on April 23rd, Sharon's going to be offering a day-long workshop all on the themes of this book. We've partnered with Wisdom for Life, which is the same organization that put on the book summit last month. And it's really just a chance to have a day-long immersion into the teachings of the book. So if that sounds like something for you, you can go to SharonSalzberg.com and register. So thanks for joining us today. And without further ado, here is today's episode. Hello. Well, good evening. Good afternoon, depending where you are. Uh, thank you all for joining us today for this very special IMS Book Club event, celebrating the launch of Sharon Salzberg's latest book, her 12th, Real Life, which just officially released today. So congratulations, Sharon. And it's a thrill for us that the book club is hosting her launch event. And it seems fitting. We're Sharon's home book club, in a sense, being at IMS. So thank you, Sharon, for that honor. And thank you, Joanna and Dan, for joining us on this special occasion. Uh, I know Dan is a bit jet lagged. He just got back from a European vacation and has been a little under the weather. So we really appreciate you being with us. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm John Spaulding, Director of Partnerships and Communications at IMS. So this evening will be a conversation between Sharon, Joanna and Dan, uh, with Dan facilitating. And the conversation, as we discussed, will be about real life, as in daily life, tying these reflections at points to real life, the book. In a moment, Sharon will lead off with a brief sit, followed by the discussion between our three guests for about 30, 40 minutes. And then after that, we'll open it up to a Q&A. So just a quick intro to our three guests. Sharon Salzberg is, of course, a central figure in the meditation world renowned meditation teacher, and is co-founder of IMS. She is the author of now 12 books, three of which we've featured with her here in the book club. And these books include her New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, Loving Kindness, and Real Change. And she is the host of her own podcast, The Meta Hour. Uh, Joanna Hardy is an insight meditation practitioner and teacher. She's on the faculty at the University of Southern California and is a meditation trainer at Apple Fitness Plus. She's a founding member of the Meditation Coalition, and she is also an IMS teacher. And Dan Harris is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, 10% Happier. He's also the host of the 10% Happier podcast and co-founder of the 10% Happier Meditation app. For 21 years, he worked at ABC News, where he anchored such shows as Nightline and the weekend editions of Good Morning America. So thank you again, the three of you for being here and for all of you for joining us. And with that, I will turn it over to you, Sharon. Well, thank you so much. It's, it is really a delight to be at the IMS book club. It's like the home team or something like that. And it's really a delight to be with my friends here and everyone who's listening. So let's sit together for just a couple of minutes to kind of more fully arrive. You just be comfortable, be at ease, close your eyes or not. 
Let your attention settle on the body or on the breath. And the operative word is rest. We just want to rest our attention. Nothing to create or do or strategize. And if, or probably I should say, when you find your attention wandering, if you get lost in thought or spun out in a fantasy or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. Notice how you speak to yourself in that moment. See if you can let go gently and just come back. Come back to whatever object that was that you were resting your attention on. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and we'll end the meditation. So thank you. And Dan. Thank you, Sharon. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Why real life? What does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean? Well, it was written when I was living in pretty strong isolation during the pandemic height and everyone was kind of experiencing those who were living that way and not going out to work every day experiencing a lot of virtual life and my publisher actually approached me about writing a book and he said something in the real series so I thought okay what's bigger like getting bigger in in concept than love is in real love or change and I thought life just life itself and what is life now and what does it feel like and what might it become? And so that brought me to real life. I think your one of your quotes that always rings in my head is that we, we don't meditate to get better at meditation. We do it to get better at life. It's true. It's true. It's also frustrating for people sometimes because if you are meditating, if you do have a meditation practice, it seems quite natural to look at that 15 minutes a day or half an hour a day, whatever it is you devote to the formal practice, you look there for signs of progress and change and the benefit of the practice. And you might not see it there. And it doesn't matter because what matters is life. Like I have a friend and a story I love to tell of someone who took me out to lunch in New York City some years ago and said, I just have to confess something. My practice for about three years now has been loving kindness meditation, whether I'm on retreat I'm sitting at home and I can't honestly say 
my meditation practice is so very different from what it was three years ago. He said, but I'm like a completely different person. I'm different with myself. I'm different with my family, I'm different ethically. I'm different with my community. And then he looked at me and he said, is that enough? And I said, yeah, I kind of think it's enough. <laughs> yes, yes. I remember uh, shortly after I started meditating, I was at a cocktail party and I heard overheard my wife saying to somebody, Dan started meditating and he's less of a shithead. And I, I remember thinking, well, that's a really good data point. I mean, that you know, I, I hadn't seen any benefits up until that point, but that that my wife was seeing it was really important. Yeah. yeah. So you talk a lot in this book about the concept of openness. What what is that? Well, in good Buddhist fashion, I'll start with the problem, which is constriction. And I was trying to distinguish constriction or that state from being one pointed or determined or intentional, which is not the same. I was really thinking about those states where we feel trapped. We feel so overcome with fear that it defines our whole sense of what might yet come, or so overcome with craving that we can't imagine ever being happy except with whatever or whomever. And it's those states where the world kind of shuts down and we don't have a sense of options. Uh, we feel disconnected. We feel incredibly alone that caused so much suffering. And so I was kind of tracing the evolution, not to the point where these states never appear, but where we can surround them with such a different energy that's so much more spacious and open that possibility returns. And we have a sense of options and we're reconnected to others and to a bigger world. And so um, that's our journey. So the fear or the anger or whatever comes up and we don't have to stifle it. We don't have to give into it. We can just be aware of it mindfully and that's openness. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a little cold, you know, we just have to be aware of it mindfully, but first of all, it's not that easy. And the nature of mindfulness has this sense of space and spaciousness and in that openness, it's not vapid, you know, it's opening the door for creativity, for love for so many things to arrive that are not really going to come when we're entangled, when we're feeling lost or overcome. But you said a very important thing, which is that fighting those states and hating them and being ashamed of them, it just doesn't work. You know, we just end up further enmeshed and it's not going to be onward leading. Let's bring in Joanna. Joanna, you've been teaching meditation for a minute. What do you hear most frequently from your students about whether or not they're able to apply their practice in their life and how do you talk to them about that? Yeah, it can be so interesting because I'll, I'll speak to people who have been meditating for 40 years and still do not know how to be in an open, loving conversation with somebody, right? Like they've become amazing meditators like you were talking about earlier, but yet there's, a, there's still a contraction. I love the contraction and, and expansion. I, I feel like I use that all the time. And then yet what we talk about the most is this place of love versus fear, or I think Socrates, he calls it love or justice, right? Is what it's is said. Or when, are you in a place of love right now or in a place of justice? And justice is often that place where we need to be right. And so when, I, when I'm teaching it, my favorite thing always is really to take a deeper, stronger breath, you know, and just finding the space in the body 
expanding that space in the body for me inevitably expands my mind. It just, it just does. It has that kind of magic in my, in my world. So, you know, and, and many people can be fearful of the breath. And that's something that I'm really trying to work with, with students also is how can we do something other than the breath that can have that same expansive effect? And, uh, you know, the hands, the feet, where am I right now? These are places that we can always come to. We, you know, sometimes when I say this and people are like, but that's so elementary. And it's like, well, it's really not. <laughs> it's really almost every time it works. You know, it works to bring us back. And it's an exciting place, that Mitzrayam. I love how you talked about that, you know, the, the narrow place. And then, you know, it's just, so, it's so beautiful when we can philosophically look at how we shut down, how we close off. And, you know, so many of it, of course, is historical and how we were brought up maybe or whatever is in our, in our history or lineage. And then can we, you know, can we come into contact with that? You talked about knowing people who meditate with who had meditated for 40 years, they were great meditators, but couldn't be in a warm, open conversation. Like, I, I have a, a hard time computing that. How can you be an excellent meditator, but a cold fish with other actual human beings? Yeah, and I'll rephrase that as when I say a good meditator, like maybe they'll sit these month-long retreats or they'll sit daily and they're really very committed to it. Yet there's a lot of judgment or shutdown or opinion or stagnancy in view that might not welcome, especially what needs to be welcomed now. I mean, it's just mind boggling what I need to learn <laughs> to be able to live in this world as a compassionate human. And so when we're shut down to wanting to understand other people, but we're really great at being still and quiet and can kind of get silent easily. I don't know. There, it feels like a miss right now for me. Yeah. Yeah, I do see this among some of the meditators. I know that that there's a there can be a penchant for judgmentalism, and it reminds me of that quote from the Buddha. I'm not sure he actually said this, but it's Sharon, you or or Joanna, you can fact check me on this. But he said something like, "Those who cling to views wander the world, annoying people." I don't know. It's a great quotation. <laughs> we can look it up on chat, whatever it is, chat GB, whatever. <laughs> Maybe. Well, you know what my current mantra is, you know, we sometimes get a phrase that kind of encapsulates our, our view on life. Like my friend, Sylvia Borstein, who um, describes herself as a recovering catastrophizer, you know, where something will happen, like her 60 year old child won't answer the phone and her mind goes to the worst has happened. So her new mantra is not every bus ends up in a ditch. And my new mantra, which is sort of more relevant to this conversation, is it's hard to be a human being. It's just not easy to be human. That's my view. That, that view seems eminently defensible and I think applicable to anybody, no matter how lucky you've been in your life, no matter how many advantages have been bestowed upon you, it's still hard to be a human. Yeah. Where do you struggle the most, Sharon, with openness for yourself? I think patience, you know. I could have the easily go to place of you've been meditating for 50 years, you know, why is this still here? But I feel incredibly grateful for the tools and the skills that I've been given, which are the little twist, you know, in them and that it's not like conquering things as we were talking about before or abolishing certain emotions or certain states from happening, but it's like, oh, 
let me be with this. Let me just be with this and see what happens. It's not be with it in the sense of give into it or, you know, make my choices based on some of these states. But wow, remember that? Like, just remember that. So, you know, I can be in a rush. It's like I also tell the story about four years ago when I was in the hospital with sepsis and uh, finally getting up and walking with a walker and the physical therapist who was accompanying me in my first trip around the corridors said to me, it's not a race, you know, you'll get further if you just like take a break now and then and slow down, take it one step at a time and then start again. And I thought, oh, right. So I'd say that's still, that's still relevant. What about for you, Joanna? Is there a place where you find yourself shutting down most frequently in, in your real life? Yeah, and I got called out on it in Sharon's book was shame, <laughs> shame. And it's funny, I texted Eve Ekman. I read the quote that you said, yeah. texted her right away. <laughs> this is here. And, you know, I hope it's okay to say this, but one of my most shameful moments that I remember was actually in contact with you, Sharon, when I said a few things in an interview and it was so impactful. That was when I really came in touch with shame for myself. But it was that moment of freeze. It really was like that cannot think, cannot do anything. But again, it goes back to this. This was my childhood. I I was not okay. And I think you even word it like that. I I wrote what you wrote is uh, we ourselves are a mistake. And so that will interestingly, I mean, obviously I have a different ability to hold it in in that expansive state now because I take that deep breath, but it comes nonetheless. But I do learn from it. I feel like it has that hairy moment, that guilt moment of, okay, how can I learn from this? And what, and usually for me, it's keeping my mouth shut. <laughs> I don't keep my mouth shut enough often. So I've gotten much better at that. But yeah, I think that's my, my sticky point. <laughs> but I think what's so interesting, you know, in, in both these examples, and we can probably ask Dan, but sometimes society promotes these very states as the most important to cultivate and the most beneficial But when you really look at it, it's like, oh, big mistake, you know? It's maybe a compromised approximation of what would actually be helpful. You know, instead of feeling, I've got to do it all right now, I've got to be in a rush, and it's okay to slow down. And instead of piling shame on top of what might have been a painful situation to begin with, realizing that it's hard to be human, you know? And we're all just human. And everyone changes. And I am not only that person who said that thing. And anyway, you know, it's always good to check things out because I was probably sitting there thinking, that's amusing or that's interesting, you know, instead of feeling horrified in any way. You, you said, you used a Buddhist term of art, Joanna, hiri. Hiri and otapa, or if, if memory serves, moral shame and moral dread. Uh, and those are actually positive states, unlike the shame that we've been talking about here. Can you unpack all of these terms for us? Yeah. So Hiri is that when I experience Hiri, it's that moment when it came out of my mouth and it's like, oh shit, I just, (laughs) I just said that. And it's landing on somebody. That's that moment of Hiri. So I'm having this internal experience of, wow, that was probably very unskillful. And I get to grow from that because I caught it because I saw it. If I didn't see it, if it was just ignorance and delusion flying out of my mouth, it's different. But to go, oh, ouch, right? And then the otipa is really, from my estimation, is how it has landed on someone. 
there was an impact there. It had a critical impact to somebody else. So therefore, I have also this opportunity for connection and for understanding of somebody else's experience from my actions. Um, so this is how I understand Harry Otepa, uh, Sharon, and you might have a different. No, that was beautiful. And I think it's really important that nobody within these ways of thinking or these perspectives on life, nobody is saying everything is equal because they're not actions are not equal in terms of consequence. And the things we cultivate, we care about, we cherish. You know, it matters if it's hatred or love. It does matter. And there is a certain sensibility. It's like conscience or sensitivity. Like, oh, I messed up. You know, that's really different than I am a worthless person. And it will never change because at the core of who I am, it's like a mess. You know, it's a very different perspective. Like I've heard people confess, you know, to people they respect, you know, who are their teachers. And they'll say, you know, I broke this precept or I did this thing and what should I do? And the teacher basically says, take it again, or maybe make amends or lessons learned or something like that. And I've always, Joanna, really admired your view on ethics, you know, and having sat in a room, listened to some of that, you know, when we've talked together, because it's, it's really crucial to understand that. Yes, I think there's a, another quotation attributed to the Buddha where he said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And sometimes when we recollect things we've done, things we've said, things we've held back from saying or doing, it hurts. It's painful to recollect that because it was not based on love for ourselves. It was not based on a sense of our innate dignity or our potential. And it shows, you know, it's really painful. But we can move on. We don't have to be super identified with that moment and you know, have that sense of hopelessness. That's all I am. And that's really what shame in the conventional sense brings us to. You sometimes talk about the difference between wise remorse and shame. And shame is, wise remorse is recognizing that, yeah, you made a mistake. Shame is you're really stuck in your head and you're unavailable. You're compounding the problem in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Buddhist psychology would be more like the distinction between remorse and guilt. What I learned in the course of writing the book was in Western psychology, guilt is sort of the more wholesome thing. It's like looking at the act or the speech or, or something and saying, oh, that was really a mistake. And shame is that more wholesale condemnation of oneself. So the vocabulary is a little different. In terms of being cool with your own ugliness, for lack of a better word, we talked in the, you, you and I recorded a podcast recently, Sharon, that went live yesterday. And in that conversation, we talked about this handshake practice that you mm -hmm. like to teach, which you have uh, borrowed from Sokni Rinpoche, a great Tibetan master. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's relevant to this discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Sonny Rinpoche describes those forces that arise in our minds, like jealousy and greed and hatred and fear and that long list of things as beautiful monsters. and you know, rather than feeling shame and cultivating that or hating ourselves for it or being afraid, it's some recognition in a way that our awareness, our compassion can be so much stronger than the appearance of those states, as strong as they may be, you know, when they come up, however intense it is, the potential we have for an awareness that is more balanced, more present and more kind is much stronger. 
And so rather than flee or freak out or try to hide from it or hide it, that state, rather than hate ourselves for it in any way, he suggests shake hands with it, like accompany it, you know, hang out with it a bit. And, you know, in other practices from Tibet, they might say, invite that, say it's a really nasty inner critic that you have, invite that being, so to speak, to give it a persona to dinner. Don't let it have the run of the house because they might steal the silverware or something, but you don't have to be so freaked out. It's okay. You can be there. You're stronger than it, in other words. And it reminds me a little bit of a maybe a psychological perspective in the West of the habits we form maybe when we're really helpless, when we are a child, when it is a question of survival or in time of extreme suffering or trauma. Those could be wise adaptations. That could be very smart to go numb, something like that. But you don't want it to be your go-to place forever. You know, and the only option you, you sort of seek when things are tough. And, and so in those times, you can remind yourself, I'm an adult now. There are skills I have, there are options I have. There's something bigger going on. I can bring a different perspective, which is not the same as hating that force, you know, that habit at all. And so I once suggested that having, you know, your inner critic for dinner and someone in the room didn't like it. And I said, okay, how about inviting them in for tea? And they said to me, how about a cup of tea to go? And I thought, okay, if that's the extent of your hospitality, fine. But you get the point. That's the essential point. Yeah, that's where sitting on the cushion, those moments of really sitting and being still with myself, Help me get so much more courageous and brave in those moments to then be less afraid of conflict, you know, to be able to, when those words hurt somebody, to really be able to go to them, not with a, I'm sorry, kind of, you know, superfluous apology, but really a depth of, ouch, (laughs) and being less afraid to really be, and again, that's that connection, right? That's that togetherness. That's how we live our life is not alone. So what that allowed me to do was have, I can almost say, have a conversation with anybody now when I feel like I've maybe hurt someone's feelings or done something that wasn't so great. Can you break that down a little bit further, Joanna? What is the relationship between sitting on the cushion for an extended period of time and being confronted with your madness and being able to withstand a difficult conversation? So the bravery came, you know, for me, first it started with loneliness. Okay, coming into contact with loneliness. What does loneliness actually feel? Where does that live in my body? What do I do? What is my typical behavior when I feel lonely? Right, so that's a, that's a for instance. Loneliness I would act out of, or anger I would act out of, or fear I would act out of. When I learned how to own that experience and feel my heart hurt or feel my belly be empty or feel my throat contract, whatever it was, I'm having a deeper understanding. And then therefore, when I'm with somebody, I know it so well, I don't have to be so confused or my mind isn't scrambled because I'm like, oh, I know this. I know, is this making sense? (laughs) I know this experience and I can share this with you now. And I can share it from a place of non-defensiveness and true vulnerability. And hopefully a level of intimacy can arise because someone can understand me and I can understand them. 
versus wanting to blame or act out. And that, that really came about through me seeing myself <laughs> and really knowing myself better. Not easy. <laughs> Not easy. Yeah. But what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Yeah. I've definitely seen my relationships change. Absolutely. Even the most difficult ones. We're going to open it up for questions soon, but before we do that, Sharon, can you talk about this concept of a growth mindset that plays such a key role in, in your book? Yeah, I, mean, I think it was really, in some ways, it was one of the essential frameworks for the book. The other was based on uh, having watched Saturday Night Seder online for, I just watched it the other night for the third year in a row, but it reminds me that the Passover Seder taken symbolically, not literally and geopolitically by any means, but symbolically, is the journey from constriction to openness. And Joanna used the Hebrew term Mitzrayim, which is the word for Egypt, and it means a narrow place. So that's what symbolically the journey is. And so the other part, the other framework was this idea that there's a distinction between a growth mindset and a kind of set mindset that we're given given unto us is all that will ever be, you know? And it's like, those are the cards we've been handed and we can show them off or we can hide them or we can pretend, you know, they're much more splendid than they, they actually are. Rather than having a sense of, it's always moving, it's always changing. We are always moving and changing and that we may find something within us that is really uh, like a mistake. Like how many people have been brought up with the idea in some way that it's a dog eats dog world, you know, like don't help anybody else because they're not going to help you. And, and anything you do in the light of generosity is going to be, people are just going to take advantage of you. You better shut down. You better keep what you've got, not share. And if any of us were kind of parsing our conditioning, we would see something along those lines or different lines, but with the same kind of effect. And, and to realize that that's just conditioning. That's not essentially who I am. That's inevitable that I can look at things like that and say, is that true? You know, is vengefulness actually strength? Is gratitude actually stupid, you know, the way I've been taught? And we get the opportunity through mindfulness or, or some kind of awareness or some kind of introspection to actually look at all that and, and realize aspects of ourselves can be slowly over time let go of. We can cultivate others and, and uh, have a very different life. We're already starting to get some questions in the Q&A uh, in this chat function here. If you look at the bottom of your screen, it says Q&A. You see a red number five there because we have five questions. But... Um, uh, and I'll start uh, running through these with Sharon and Joanna, but um, feel free to enter your own questions. The first one is actually for you, Sharon. I ordered the book a while ago and it has not arrived. Has it been released yet? Yes, I saw that, which is why I said the book came out today, just today. This is the birthday of the book and hopefully you'll get it soon. Next question is from Mark. Um, we talked about this a little bit, but I'd love to hear if there's anything more to say, Joy, I'll start with you. Um, Mark says, I'd love to hear from the speakers about their own meditation practice on a daily basis and where do they struggle in bringing meditation benefits into daily life? 
So I do have a daily meditation practice, but it, it's sort of like, it's very circular for me. So this ethical practice that Cher brought up, I very much take my ethical practice of not causing harm. I'll, I won't go through all the precepts, but of not causing harm very seriously. And I'm aware of that when I sit on my cushion, I'm aware of that in the morning when I sit and how it's impacted myself. So I do a, about a half hour of an Anapanasati practice. So that's a breath practice. And then I have a chanting, a Kuan Yin chanting practice that I do for another 15 or so minutes. And it just really grounds me. It clears my mind of the cobwebs and it allows me to feel what is actually present. Um, and then that way, when I walk into my world, when I walk into my life, um, I know what's purposeful. I know what's important. I was thinking about um, where I put my energy this morning when I was meditating. And, you know, sometimes my energy is so all about work and all about where and what I can do for more people before I die. <laughs> and then other times it's really about being quiet and still and not doing anything for weeks at a time. So I think it just gives me a lot of clarity and it gives me an ability to know, you know, what my next steps can be and, and are they wise. Sharon, anything more on your end about what your practice looks like and where you find um, the most difficulty in applying it to your real life? I don't think so much in terms of difficulty in application, or I don't think so much in terms of struggle in bringing benefits, because one of the things that has heartened me the most is that the way the benefits kind of pervade a life, you know, not perfectly by any means, but, you know, in the sense that if I'm having a conversation with somebody and I realize, say, I'm not really listening and I'm distracted and thinking about my email or something like that, I feel that at some point and I don't have to give myself a lecture. Like, you're really bad, you know, you should really try to pay attention. It's just like, it feels so uncomfortable that I can bring my attention back in that same way I would do in meditation. And so, I think philosophically, you know, there can be a struggle for sure. And something I've said a lot because it figured in a lot of the writing of my previous book, Real Change, which was supposed to come out earlier than it did. And because of the pandemic, it was delayed. And something that happened because of that is that I had a chance to write a new preface. And the question I asked myself over and over again was what's still true? Like, this is a time of upheaval. It's enormous change. I'm not where I expected to be, which was New York City. I was in Barry. Like, what's still true? And there was a lot I've discovered was still absolutely true for me in terms of my practice. But it was also, I kept thinking of things like the Buddha saying, or was echoed by Martin Luther King Jr., you know, centuries later, that hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. Which I always considered kind of ironic because I always think of the Buddha as sort of Mr. Impermanence, you know, and here he is saying this is an eternal law. And there are times, absolutely, where I think, surely not here, you know, not in this one, not with this one, this character couldn't be, you know. And then I think, is this an eternal law? Maybe, you know, let's check it out at least. Let's make the experiment. Because it's not that easy to think about hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. Really? You know, with this person also? Really? And I kind of like that, though. I don't see it so much as a struggle, but 
that sort of wondering and checking it out. Like maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. But wow, what if it is true? It's kind of a good good way of being. And love in this context does not preclude being firm or tough. No, it couldn't. I mean, that would be ridiculous. You know that uh, it, it it doesn't mean you like somebody or you approve of them or you're gonna make sure that their agenda, you know, succeeds at all. You know, we know there's such a thing as tough love or fierce compassion and the action one takes may be really strong and intense. Or you might decide, I'm not going to be in the same room with this person. It's not safe. You know, there's lots of possibilities for action, but the heart space, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be embittered and, and uh, afraid, you know, terrified of somebody and kind of consumed with their action. It's like we can spend, most of the day thinking about someone else's action instead of like having a life, you know? Oh, along those lines, Karen asks, and, and maybe Joanna, you want to weigh in on this. Uh, how do we address feelings of mistrust in people in our society that we meet and don't know very well? It's hard to stay open to others when there's, when there are so many sick people in society today. Yeah. I mean, I have the unfortunate an obsession of being on social media. <laughs> and so I get to see the best and the worst. And, you know, just literally today, I was just like, that poor person, they were being incredibly abusive to an animal. I'm a big animal activist. And, and I, I went, what kind of pain must this person, you cannot cause that amount of harm if you're not in pain, you know? And so I, I it's interesting how, and this again, is what I think this practice can do for us is we can be so surprised by what what arises like what is what is the litmus test what just if if I see something it's interesting to recognize am I hating right now or am I seeing with clarity what this person must be going through also and that just arises I can't make it happen I can't I don't know if I'm answering the question it's just more of a my my line of thinking but us judging condemning fighting is not going to solve the problem. Us having clear, honest response. Absolutely. What can I stand for? How will I show up? Absolutely. So it's, you know, how will I show up is, has become very important to me and my integrity means a lot. So I, we cannot control other people. Can't do it. Try it. I've tried. I've tried. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a big conversation, important conversation and how, how will we show up? is all I can do today. Karen, there's a question here about growth mindset from Kathleen. She says she's just started a new job that's providing me ample opportunities to both grow personally and professionally. How can I apply this growth mindset during the times when I'm feeling the growing pains of learning new things? Yeah, I want to tie this into something that Joanna just said, which I think is really crucial, is that when she said something like it doesn't work, you know, that sort of condemning attitude, because I think we can also look to see what our main motivation is. Like, do we want to see a resolution or do we want to feel better than everybody else? You know, what do we want? And what do we want most fundamentally? Like, do we have a kind of North star that's guiding our choices and our actions a lot of the time, if not all the time. And, and that's really helpful to see. And if it's for to learn or to, find a way of mentoring somebody without looking at them and saying, you're an idiot. You know, you don't know anything. If that's what we say, we have to say, what do I really want? Do I just want to prove my superiority all the time? Or do I want to actually impart something here? And so 
I see it in the same way, the having that kind of growth mindset, because there are times we are all beginners again, which is kind of a funny moment, you know, where we may have been incredibly polished and quite good at something. And then it shifts and we're at the beginning again of, of learning something new. And many of us were not also brought up with a kind of love of learning and that feeling of almost innocence or ignorance, which can be really great. Like it can be painful, but it's mostly painful. I think if we denounce ourselves for our clumsiness or our awkwardness, or we blow it in some way, we make a mistake and, and we think that's unforgivable instead of feeling like, oh, I was bold enough to make a mistake. You know, I didn't like stay within the lines when I was drawing. And I think it takes a whole reorientation toward not being perfect and that's allowed. And this is how, this is how things go. Like I also am on social media and uh, so I, I am also watching like a lot of things. Like you think someone put that up, like, wow. But, uh, you know, realizing how rare that mindset is, like, I made a mistake. What can I learn from it? Rather than I made a mistake, I'm like a hideous person. And seeing, well, if I could share more of that, that would be well worth doing. I'm going to pair a comment here with a question. Becky writes, not a question, but feeling like I'm in a room with friends and beloved teachers. Many thanks to the light you continue to bring into the world. And then right above that is a question from an anonymous attendee. What's the role of Sangha, which is the Buddhist term for community, in supporting this work? I don't know many places where folks can talk about this work. You want to take that one, Sharon? Yeah, Sangha does mean community, and it's, it's, it is really important. And I think if you don't have a place in your uh, immediate circle of people, I would find a place online. And, you know, I know IMS, for one thing, is is developing lots of cohorts and affinity groups and including one on metta or loving kindness, which is coming down the pike uh, for people who are especially drawn to that practice. And because it's really helpful, you know, um, first of all, it reminds us we're all human. I mean, I can remember my very first retreat, which was in Bodh Gaya, India in 1971 and uh, January of 1971. And the men were all sleeping up on the roof under a tent. The women were all sleeping on the floor in the corridor surrounding the meditation hall. And teacher was S.N. Goenka. And for some reason, after lunch one day, he went to where people were, were staying and just asked one after another, how is your practice? What are you experiencing? And so on. So you could kind of hear the stories as he was coming closer. And if I wasn't in terrible physical pain, I was sleepy all the time. And I just felt, I can't admit that, you know, I can't tell him like, what a disgrace. And he got to the person just next to me. Hi, Mirabai Bush. That's who it was. And he said, how are you doing? And she said, I'm so sleepy. And I thought, thank goodness, you know, somebody's going to get the answer and which he did, you know, and, and uh, but it could have been me. And then the next person could have said, oh, wow, it's not just me. And it's really, really helpful. And I think worth finding if you can. Joanna, for you, um, this question has to do with age. Uh, this is from Jamie. As we age and lose our mental faculties, how do we retain an openness? And how do we manage expectations of others who deteriorate mentally and lose their openness and their care for the world around them? 
that really touched with me. I spent the day on Easter with my father. And so I'm watching him be this, you know, six foot four strong man in my life. I'm watching him barely able to walk and actually sat in his lap on Easter and just rubbed his head for a minute, you know, just it goes back to that imperfection again. In our society, we have this idea that aging is just not okay. And it's so tender and beautiful and wise. And I am watching friends have grandchildren and parents dying. There's just so much tenderness. And all, you know, all I can say is heart, tender, compassion, love, acceptance, understanding. You know, this is, this is one of the truths, right? Old age, sickness, and death. And it's, it's here. How kind can we be to ourselves and to it and turn off the, turn off the media that wants to say we need to stay 35 forever? Beth asks, Sharon, have you ever considered writing a book called So You've Had a Spiritual Awakening, Now What? I think Jack Cornfield wrote that. What's it called? After, After the-, the Ecstasy, the Laundry. Bet one of the best <laughs> Dharma book titles ever. Second only to Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? Who wrote that? <laughs> I don't know. It's back there somewhere, but... Um, oh, maybe Ajahn Brahm, I think, actually wrote it. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> no, I think this is book number 12. I think I'll breathe in for a while. Actually, not that long. I have another book coming out in October. Joanna Sarabeth asks, I'd very much like to hear more about how best to get through what I call a meditative drought, where I really can't feel much difference in my life. I know change is there, but I can't feel it. I've meditated daily for several years. One of the drought phase symptoms is being bummed about the drought phase. Also, I can't skip this chance to say thank you for the bottom of my heart. I could talk for hours about the difference each of you has made in my life. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah Beth. In terms of the drought question, Joanna, what, what say you? Yeah, been there. And, you know, I like to challenge myself because typically we're so used to shopping around, right? If this isn't working, I'm going to try this. If this isn't working, I'm going to try that. And, and how we can get into this thing like, well, and then we, we never really get anywhere. So I, and what I prescribe to I have a few students on this call who will say, I will make you stay right there. <laughs> like if it's boredom, like, can I, can I identify, is this drought really boredom? What does boredom feel like? What is the experience of having nowhere to go and nothing to do? Which is, I think, typically, you know, when we meditate, we want something to be happening. We want change to happen. We want to feel better. We want to feel less stressed. We want to sleep better. We want to stop eating too much ice cream, whatever, you know, whatever the things are that we think can happen through meditating. There's almost the challenge that I really appreciate is what if absolutely nothing is happening? And again, this is where a lot of times we can get really contracted and constricted and tight and watch, watching that, feel where the tightness comes in and see if you can say to yourself for a month, I'm going to be in this drought. What is drought? Drought's a great word. What does drought feel like? Where does drought live? Is it in my mind? Is it in my belly? Is it in my heart? Is it in my throat? And just really kind of really, this is where the investigation and the curiosity in our practice can become so alive. And try to kind of check it out and, and stay with that experience of hey, nothing's happening right now. And I wish I could talk to you in a month. <laughs> Alexandra writes, I have very much enjoyed this conversation. I have a question about Sharon's new book. Does it touch on authenticity and being real? 
I would love to hear what being authentic means to you all. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you, Sharon. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways that's that's at the heart of it, but it's uh, sometimes we use the term authentic kind of in a different context. It's almost like, yeah, they're, you know, they're mean and they're cutting people down and they're promoting themselves exclusively, but they're so authentic, you know, but they're so authentic because they're putting it out there. They're not like obeying social niceties or, or trying to pretend to be somebody else, but that's not how I would use the word authentic because I think we're capable of so much more than that. And, you know, it goes back in a way in my mind to if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And understanding that, that also implies in a way that we have potential, every single one of us, not because we did something special to deserve it, but just from being alive, we have potential for a kind of greatness of heart we do. And we don't live it out. We don't reside there very often. And so what would it mean? to actually trust that a little bit or or to explore that certainly that's more what i would call authentic like what's underneath some of the conditioning and the habit and the the ordinary ways of being like what what do i discover and there's also something very much in my mind about wholeness of being like a kind of integration of being like if i was going to describe myself at the age of 18 in one word before I went to India, it would be fragmented. And we see it all the time, the way we have like role identification and, you know, people say I'm a totally different person at work than I am at home. Or my favorite example of that was teaching somewhere and someone raised their hand and they said, I feel filled with loving kindness for all beings everywhere as long as I'm alone. <laughs> but once I'm with others, it's really rough. And everyone laughed because we all knew what they meant. And it also could be the other way around. I feel fine when I'm with others and very uneasy being alone. And so our lives are kind of cut into these pieces. And I see that authenticity is kind of coming together and being whole. And in some ways, that was my, my first impression of who the Buddha was in my mind, being in India and kind of walking on those same roadways, you know, in effect. And you know, that he was who he was, whether he was alone or he was with others, whether he was giving a teaching or he was, you know, eating a meal. It's like he was who he was. And so that's what I longed for more than anything was some sense of, of wholeness. And that is what I think we can, we can actually experience. We're almost out of time here, but any closing thoughts from you, Joanna, and then we'll go back to Sharon for some closing, closing thoughts from her. All I want to say is I'm honored to be here. I think this book has so much in it. <laughs> I'm going to read it a few more times. Um, I read it one time on vacation. Now I'll read it one more time in real life. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but thank you for being here and keep going. That's This is what we do, right? The practice is about we keep going, we keep learning. Don't give up. Sharon, congratulations again on your new book. Any Anything to say as we uh, thank you. sail off into the night here? This has really been wonderful. It's a beautiful birth process. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Joanna. I feel, I feel well launched, you know, like it's a real celebration. Great. John, do you want to come back in and say anything as, as we wrap up here? Yeah, sure. I just want to thank everyone for joining us tonight for this really special club. And, and I want to thank Dan for 
coming in to kind of host and moderate this conversation. And Joanna, thank you so much for joining us. And Sharon, congratulations on this book. It is really wonderful. And it was such a thrill to be able to host this launch event and wish you every success with the book. Thank you all. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night. Hey folks, thanks so much for listening. If you would like to hear more about Sharon's work, her different online events, or guest podcast appearances, really all things Sharon, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast on the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be healthy, May you be happy and may you live with ease.